Freedom of the will. The freedom to choose to do God's will or to act against it. The truth is we make choices every single day. Choices that involve our own will to either do what God wants us to do or not. Our lives consist of a series of choices, moment by moment, day by day, year after year. And the direction and quality and longevity of our lives, at least in part, is the product of those choices, which in no way negates the providence or sovereignty of God, by the way. God is altogether sovereign over this world and the people in it. He sovereignly draws us to him, and yet he loves us enough to grant to each of us the ability to make choices, including whether or not to follow him as he directs us. And if you are a follower of Christ, you know that choosing to follow him is not only the right choice, the best choice, and a a wonderful choice in so many ways, but you also know that making that choice, that decision to follow his will can be very difficult in times of testing, particularly when making that choice to follow him involves circumstances that produce stress and fear and misunderstanding, which we began talking about last week as we read through the first 21 verses of John chapter 6, where Jesus' disciples found themselves in some difficult situations, some stressful situations, and even fearful situations. And so John tells us upon reflection of those events that they were being tested by Jesus. Their, their faith, their resolve was being tested, and we see them respond out of stress and, and fear and under those pressures where their faith wavered, and they didn't pass those tests. However, they still chose to follow him. And that, that fact can't really be overstated because we don't always pass every test in our relationship with God or in our relationships with others for that matter. But that does not mean that we have to give up or walk away from that relationship. Even when we fail, we, we still get to choose because he loves us so much, we still get to choose to follow him and to pursue those relationships with others as well. And in fact, that is the very nature of God. Uh, Lamentations three twenty two and 23 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And that passage was written in the context of Judah's unfaithfulness to God. They failed the test. And even though we are unfaithful at times, he is always faithful. His steadfast love for us never ceases. It never ceases. Never. And this is our example to follow in all of our relationships. We choose to follow Christ and we choose to love one another, even where there is stress, fear, and misunderstanding. Our love for one another and for God should never cease, even when those relationships are strained. In fact, especially when they're strained, our love should be most evident then when the stress, fear, and misunderstanding shows up. Uh, You know, when you really mess something up, when you really screw up a relationship and that person that you've hurt comes to you and deeply and genuinely forgives you with with a true and abiding forgiveness and then loves you through it, that is when you feel the most loved more even than when everything is going like clockwork because when someone shows you that they truly love you, even in your failure, that is when you know that you know that you're surely loved, which is exactly what God was saying to his people in Lamentations and it's exactly what he's saying to us over and over and over again in his word. And what we do with that word, with that knowledge, with that truth is is a test for all of us today because Jesus commanded his followers later in this gospel to love one another just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. 
John 13, 34. We're supposed to love one another the same way that he loved us, with, with an abiding, enduring love, even when there's failure in the relationship. And so as we read and study together this morning, understand that our relationships are constantly being tested, including our relationship with him. And, and we have to choose, just as he's given us the ability to make that choice, to follow his word, his will, or to reject that path and instead cave to the stress and fear and misunderstanding that we all experience at times in our relationships. And so last week we talked about the stress and fear components in those relationships. And today, as we finish John chapter 6 in our sermon series, The Gospel According to John, we're going to talk about misunderstanding in our relationships as we complete last week's message with a sermon entitled, This is a Test, Part 2. And if you missed part one, of this message, then by all means, please go to our website and download it so you can see how all of this fits together, okay? So we're going to pick up the story where we left off last week at John chapter 6, verses 22 through 34. This is uh, just after Jesus walked on the water as the disciples were caught in a storm crossing the Sea of Galilee, but Jesus showed up in dramatic fashion and brought them safely to the other shore. So let's read it together, starting with verses 22 through 34. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they asked him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. So earlier, just after Jesus miraculously fed the multitude of people with just five loaves of bread and two fish, verse 15 says that perceiving them that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So even though Jesus had great compassion and love for them, he was trying to get away from this massive crowd of people because he knew their hearts. He knew that they wanted to enter into his feast but not his sufferings. They wanted him to be their king, but they hadn't counted the cost of what that would mean for them, which is such a powerful and rev uh, relevant passage for us, not only to consider for ourselves as we choose to follow Christ, but also for us to communicate to others who express that desire. See, if we say we want Jesus, and then we have to, we have to take everything that goes along with that. We, we can't pick and choose the easy parts that we like and then disregard the difficult parts that we don't. It doesn't work that way. And yet there are certainly people today who seek him 
for the food that perishes instead of the food that endures to eternal life. There are people who only want Jesus for the prosperity and material blessing that he can provide without having to pick up their cross and follow him. And Jesus recognizes those shallow desires and these people who have followed him to Capernaum. And so he begins to use their own desire to be fed perishable things to paint a picture of what they will actually have to feed on if they're going to truly follow him, the sufferings that they will have to share if they also want to share at his table. And the conversation that starts here continues to escalate all the way to the end of the chapter, but it starts by Jesus simply responding to their own ideas of what following him looks like. They ask him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answers, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So first of all, Jesus makes it very clear that they cannot please God if they don't believe in him. He says that because he knows that in just a moment he's going to say some things that will utterly put their belief in him to the test. He's about to put their faith in him to the ultimate test. And so knowing that he's about to do that, he says, okay, if you want to follow God, first of all, you have to believe in me. So he qualifies the statements that he's about to make just before he puts their faith in him, uh, the relationship that they say they want to have with him to the test. And as if to say, no problem, Jesus, we're happy to believe in you. Just give us a sign. Just give us a good reason to believe. They say, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, keep in mind, these are the very same people that he just miraculously fed with five loaves of bread and two fish. They just witnessed him perform a great sign and make no mistake, they haven't forgotten it. What they're saying to Jesus here is, if you want us to believe in you, then how about you whip up another meal for us? Because the last one was great, but that was yesterday and we're hungry again now. And Jesus knew that they weren't looking for a relationship with him. They were looking for a handout, which is a major factor in so many broken relationships and broken marriages today, by the way. When we enter into a relationship with our own interests and our own needs as our first priority, we've already started on the wrong foot. Remember, Jesus said, love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. If we want our relationships to endure, to thrive, to flourish, we have to love each other like he loves us. And that means sacrifice. It means submission. It means devotion. Even when the other person in that relationship fails you, you see, Jesus died for a world full of people who had rejected him. He prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do as he was being crucified. That is our example. If, if we want our relationships to last, then we put each other first. Even when that other person fails you, you still put them first. And yet that's not what most people do. You see, most people go into self-preservation mode as soon as they get hurt in a relationship. They begin looking out for themselves first. And again, I talked about this last week. We're not addressing abusive situations in this message expressly. There are times when relationships need to end, when they become dangerous and abusive. What we're discussing is the model of sacrificial love that Jesus set before us that we're to practice in our relationships with one another, even when we fail during those times of testing, that all relationships 
experience. And so Jesus is saying, first of all, you'll have to stop putting yourselves first if you're going to follow me. He says, you need the bread that is from heaven far more than the bread that is in your stomach. To which they reply, sir, give us this bread always. And, and so Jesus says, okay, here we go then. And the conversation begins to escalate from here. Verses 35 through 40. Let's keep reading. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, on, on 17 occasions in this gospel, Jesus uses the phrase I am, which is the Greek ego emi, which we talked about last week. It's a quote from the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament taken from Exodus 3.14, where God the Father identifies himself as I am who I am, which wasn't uh, lost on the religious Jews who were there. But within those 17 occasions, when Jesus uses this phrase, there are seven I am statements that are considered to be the most significant because those seven combine the phrase ego me, I am, with a predicate. So it's the difference between Jesus simply saying I am without any other qualifier or him saying, I am the bread of life. And so there are seven of these I am statements with a predicate added, which not only adds emphasis to that statement, but it also adds layers, additional layers of specific meaning to the claim that he is God. And this I am statement in verse 35 is the first of those seven, and it was a really, really big deal for the religious Jews to hear Jesus make this claim, as we'll see. But before we get to that, I just want to point something out here. Just after explaining that he is the bread of life and that whoever comes to him will never hunger or thirst again, he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Okay, Jesus is not only making several claims about himself throughout this chapter, but he's also proving those claims by his actions over and over again. He claims to be God, and then in a very stressful situation, he performs supernatural miracles that validate that claim. He feeds 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. He claims that his followers have no reason to fear because he was with them. And then he, he brought them safely through a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And here he claims that whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. And not only does he continue to prove that as he goes forward from here, but we've already repeatedly seen his disciples fail the testing of their faith. And yet Jesus never casts them out. He never tells them to leave so he can surround himself with people who have more faith. In fact, he knows what's in the heart of Judas, as we'll see. And even at that, Jesus doesn't cast him out. On the contrary, he validates his claim by continuing to love and teach and nurture and embrace these followers of his, no matter how much they fail or fall short. Okay, look, I, I know that in our culture, we're taught from the time that we're very young to prove ourselves to each other. 
We have to prove ourselves at our jobs. We have to prove ourselves in competition. We have to prove ourselves in school. We have to prove ourselves with our friends. And we've, we've carried that philosophy into our relationships when we base our love for others on the degree to which they've proven themselves worthy or we cast them off. But Jesus said, the only thing that you have to do to prove yourself to me is come to me. Just come to me and I will never cast you out. Charles Spurgeon once said, faith in Christ is simply and truly described as coming to him. It is not an acrobatic feat. It is simply a coming to Christ. It is not an exercise of profound mental faculties. It is coming to Christ. A child comes to his mother. A blind man comes to his home. Even an animal comes to his master. Coming is a very simple action indeed. It seems to have only two things about it. One is to come away from something, and the other to come to something. Okay, his love for us isn't based on what we can accomplish for him. It's based on what he has already accomplished for us. And so now he draws us to him, and when we come to him as his children, we're loved because of that belonging, not because of approving. And so my love for my wife, for my kids, for my friends, cannot be based on what they can do for me. My love for them must be based on who they are, brothers and sisters in Christ. All right? Some people need to put away the measuring stick. Stop keeping score of how much you've done for your husband or wife compared to what that person has done for you. That's a good way to poison your marriage. Stop keeping score and start loving people for who they are. Your brothers and sisters, your kids, your wife, your husband, just love people for who they are. Jesus said, love one another just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. Okay, he proved every one of his claims. And the moment that we claim to be Christians, followers of Christ, whether we realize it or not, that is an exceptionally daring claim for us to make because we're attesting that we identify ourselves with Christ, which means we act like him, we live like him, and we love like him, even when others that we're in relationship with fail. Okay, when you read that verse in John 1334, love one another just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another. If you keep reading the very next verse, Jesus says, by this, by this love, he's talking about all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Okay, we have to make good on the claim that we're Christians. And the way that we do that is by loving each other the way that Christ loves us. He never casts us out. That is how all people, according to Jesus, will know that we're his disciples. All right, so Jesus makes this series of claims about himself. And in this first great I am statement, he gets the attention of the religious Jews. Let's keep reading. Verses 41 through 59. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father, except he was from God. He has seen the father. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So this entire chapter has been stories about Jesus testing the faith of his followers. And so far, they've pretty much fallen flat. There was the feeding of the multitude and the stress that situation created. There was the trip across the Sea of Galilee and the fear that situation created. And here we find Jesus and his disciples along with the crowds that have followed them, not in a critical situation without food, not in a life-threatening situation out on the sea, and we don't find Jesus performing a miracle as he tests his followers. He's simply having a conversation, and yet it proves to be the greatest test yet by far. Because although this isn't a particularly stressful situation or a particularly fearful situation, there is great misunderstanding as Jesus explains the cost of following him in a way that they clearly do not understand. First, he reiterates that he's the bread of life. And then he says, by the way, if you want to live forever, you'll have to eat this bread. And just to be clear, the bread that I speak of is my flesh. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So, of course, we know now that when Jesus said the bread he gives is his flesh, he was making reference to his death on the cross. When he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. We know that that was not a literal statement, first of all, because no one ever did that. The eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood was metaphorical language with a spiritual meaning. Jesus was saying that you have to place all of your trust and faith in my atoning death on the cross and identify yourself, all of yourself with me, not just in my miracles and provision, but in my suffering and death and resurrection as well. This is the cost of following him. So eating that flesh uh, that Jesus is referring to is having faith in and receiving into ourselves him, and specifically in this case, his work on the cross. So you've heard the saying, seeing is believing. Well, in this case, eating is believing. It's why St. Augustine once wrote, believe and you have eaten. And of course, we get that now. Today, we have the entire canon of biblical scripture, detailed accounts of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, and about 2,000 years of study and interpretation of that scripture and those events to reflect upon. These people didn't have any of that. 
Can you imagine how thoroughly repulsive, how offensive this must have sounded to those who were there that day? Here is this man who has been healing people miraculously, providing food for thousands of people supernaturally, sovereignly controlling the weather and the elements, all of these amazing things that are putting his followers to the test. And yet these statements by Jesus are something altogether different. This is a line in the sand for many, as we'll see, because Jesus says to them, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to live forever and hunger and thirst no more. And he says that, by the way, with no further explanation up to this point. It doesn't surprise me at all that they questioned him because they didn't have the benefit of hindsight at this point. They couldn't look back to his death and resurrection yet and make sense of these statements. This is a serious misunderstanding because at least some of them believed Jesus to be speaking literally about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And it proves to be more than many of them can take as their faith is tested beyond anything they've experienced yet. When verse 52 says that the Jews then disputed amongst themselves, the word disputed there is the Greek uh, makomi, which is a very strong uh, word. It means to war. And it was often used as it is here figuratively. And its intent in this passage is to emphasize the ferocity of the dispute that they were having. Jesus had stirred up a hornet's nest of misunderstanding because of their hard hearts. And so once again, his followers' faith is put to the test. And so last week, in the first part of this message, Jesus showed us that no matter how stressful our situations or relationships can become, that God has the answers to the test. We also learned that even when we're riddled with fear and doubt, that God reveals himself in the test. And in this final portion of the chapter, we see that even when we don't understand what's happening, when misunderstanding dominates our circumstances and relationships, if we will just come to Jesus, even when we don't fully understand what's going on, God will lead us through the test. All right, there are times in life when we face situations where there is misunderstandings, sometimes a lot of misunderstanding. There may be times when God leads us in a direction that may not make any sense to us at all, at least in the beginning. In Acts chapter 16, there's a point where Paul and Timothy are trying to travel through Asia, but the Holy Spirit leads them elsewhere on a 400-mile detour to the north and then westward to Troas with no explanation until they get there. And even at that, it was never completely explained. <clears throat> Let's read it, Acts 16, 6 through 10. It says, and, and they went through the region of Fergie and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You see, it made far more sense to Paul and Timothy logistically and for the sake of their ministry to travel through Asia. But God directs them otherwise with no further explanation other than the fact that God wants them in Macedonia. Well, uh, don't the people in Asia need the gospel just as much as the people in Macedonia? Why not preach your way through Asia first and then go into Macedonia? The truth is we don't know why. God doesn't offer Paul and Timothy, or us for that matter, an explanation. We just know that from a travel standpoint, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to avoid Asia. 
I find it remarkable throughout Scripture that Jesus said some of the things that he said without further explanation. But remember, God has the answers to the test. We don't. Our job is not to create or even be the custodians of the master plan. That's God's job. Our job is to trust that Jesus will reveal himself to us as he leads us through the test. And that may rub us the wrong way because, of course, we like to know what's coming next. But notice that the Spirit of Jesus never offered Paul and Timothy an apology for their lack of understanding the plan. Just as Jesus doesn't offer an apology to his disciples who don't understand what he's telling them in our story today. Okay, there will be times of misunderstanding in our relationship with Christ and in our relationship with others. And so we have to decide ahead of time whether or not we're going to choose to follow him as he leads us through that test, those times of misunderstanding, when he knows the plan and we don't. Are we going to choose to focus on Jesus Christ first in our relationships, especially when there's misunderstanding? Or are we going to demand answers that make sense to us first and then walk away if those answers don't come? Okay, Paul and Timothy chose to focus on Christ first, not their lack of understanding about the direction he was leading them in. But I also want to point out that he was leading them the entire time. Their trust and obedience was being tested as the Holy Spirit forbade them from going the direction that made far more sense to them. But they chose to trust and obey, and he led them every step of the way. Because why? Because he always leads us through the test. We just have to make that choice to follow even when we don't understand. And this is precisely the test that his disciples were facing as he was teaching them here, and it proved to be too much for most of them. Let's keep reading and see what happens next. Verses 60 through 65. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. In other words, it wouldn't make any difference if Jesus gave them further explanation, because in the end, some of them weren't going to follow him anyway. And he knew that. Okay, what Jesus was looking for in his disciples then is the same thing that he's looking for from us today. He's calling us to a deep commitment. When he said to them, you have to feast on me, he wasn't talking about a casual relationship. He was explaining to them that unless you take all of me, not just the parts that are easy to understand, but all of me as if you were ingesting me, consuming me. If you're not willing to have all of me, then you cannot have any part of me at all. This is all or nothing. There's no room in my kingdom for half-hearted commitments. And incidentally, he put them to the test so that they would choose. He already knew who was with him and who wasn't. Okay, The, the test was for their benefit, not his. And what exactly was the test here? Well, he tells us in verses 63 and 64. Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. 
The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but some of you will not believe. You see, the greatest test of all is his word and whether or not we truly believe it. That's why Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And interestingly enough, the writer of Hebrews in this section of the letter references the 95th Psalm several times. And if we read verses 7 through 9 of Psalm 95, it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. The reference to Meribah and Massa, which you can read about in the, the first seven verses of Exodus 17, is a reference to the time when the Israelites demanded water in the wilderness, even after all of the proof that they'd already been given to trust God's word, all that they'd already seen him do. And yet they still level a very presumptuous challenge before Moses. They said, is the Lord among us or not? They tested the Lord, even though he'd proven himself to them time and again. And it's the same message that Jesus gives his disciples in our story today. Verses 61 through 63, again of John 6. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, are you going to put me to the proof? Right? He'd already performed many miracles of provision for them, just as the Lord did before Meribah and Massa. In verse 63, he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Okay? Following Jesus Christ has never been a matter of proof. The proof is all around us, and it will never be a matter of fully understanding all that he has to say and do. Sometimes there's misunderstanding, and yet in those moments, we have to choose to continue to follow him or to walk away because there is no middle ground with Jesus. And if we walk away, it isn't for a lack of proof because he's proven himself over and over again. Okay, if we walk away, it's because we simply don't believe his word to be true. But we must believe if we're to have any part with him, because there is no middle ground with Jesus. As we see here in the last part of our story, let's read it together, verse 66 to the end of the chapter. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You see, God's word proved to be the greatest test of all, and it still is today. Jesus knew every man's heart, and he still does. And so when the tests come, and they will, when the stress and the fear and the misunderstanding comes, the only question that matters is, will we choose to come to Jesus who will never cast us out and follow him and follow his word as he leads us through the test or will we walk away? And likewise in our relationships with others, his word is the greatest test of all. His word says, love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. 
You see, that word alone is a test for all of us in our relationships when we're not being loved the same way that we love, when, when we don't feel that we're being treated fairly, when there's great misunderstanding. Are we going to follow his word and let him lead us through that or will we walk away? Because I know that when great testing comes, it can feel like you're all alone. When stress and fear and especially misunderstanding set in, it's easy to want to give in. But listen, he said he would never cast you out. Never means never. You are never cast out. You are never abandoned. You are never without hope. You're never lost. Never without a purpose. You're never alone because he is always, always, always always there in every trial and in every heartache and in every misunderstanding he is with you always and he will absolutely lead you through every single test in your life that is his word for you